Hey listeners, Mealy and Christine here. Though we are licensed medical professionals, nothing we speak about in the well conversation should be taken as health advice. These episodes are based on a review of current research available and well-known frequently applied interventions used by professionals in the field. If you have a pre-existing medical condition, the information shared in this presentation may not be entirely safe or applicable to you. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before applying any changes to your health, especially if you have a pre-existing medical condition or are taking prescription medications. Welcome to another episode of The Well Conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Christine. And I'm Dr. Maley. Juice cleanses, Weight Watchers, Spring Detox, Extreme Caloric Restricting. We've all seen the way diet culture can negatively impact individuals, especially young women and girls. But then, on the other hand, the fat acceptance movement has taken off in the past few years, in which influencers and media campaigns seek to change social attitudes around society's treatment and thoughts around those who struggle with weight issues. But where do we draw the line between these two? What is acceptable and what's a health concern? How can we navigate weight loss in a loving way? In today's episode of The Well Conversation, we have with us Michelle Shapiro, who is an integrative registered dietitian practicing in New York. Michelle helps executives heal from stress and digestive issues so that they can lose weight and restore their energy while experiencing a deeper connection with themselves and with life. Any condition that Michelle works with is something that she has proudly battled herself. She works to bring the lessons she learned, both academically and personally, to all of her clients. She works to give her clients tangible tools to reverse anxiety and digestive issues while still ditching restriction and negative thoughts about food and their bodies, and finally learn to eat more authentically and intentionally. As a patient advocate, Michelle works to connect clients with naturopathic and functional medicine practitioners to create sacred spaces for healing. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Christine and Maylee, I'm so excited to be here. We're so happy to have you. Like I said before as well, I'm loving the energy. (laughs) I'm bringing you New York City levels of energy. (laughs) Love it. So why don't we start off by giving our listeners a little bit of background into you and your personal connection with diet, culture, and weight loss. Absolutely. So I grew up in New York City, what I would say is the best city in the entire world, and also one of the most diverse places in the world and one of the most places where, and I grew up in Queens, New York, actually my high school is the most diverse high school in the entire world, which is the coolest thing ever. I think that in New York, body diversity is a lot more celebrated, racial diversity is a lot more celebrated. So growing up in New York, I was occupying a larger body. And I was class clown of my high school, it's like my crowning achievement of my life. I had, you know, not being a dietitian or anything like that, just winning class town um, and had like a great life, but really felt like my weight kind of was this thing that I was always going to carry with me. I had tried a bunch of restrictive diets up until that point, And then I decided I was going to go to the University of Delaware to study nutrition and realized Delaware in the States, Delaware is a much more homogenous place, not as diverse, totally different kind of feel. And I was like, oh, when I go to college, People aren't going to know all these amazing things about me. There's still these societal barriers. I'm actually going to have to lose weight to fit in for the first time in my life. I never had a problem making friends. I had like, you know, great grades, great friends. I had like an amazing life. And I was kind of like, you know, I feel like this kind of piece of me occupying a larger body 
is always just going to be that piece of the puzzle that is just going to be left out and there's nothing I can do. So I took really, really drastic efforts going into college. I was like, before I get to school, there's going to be all these people who look the same and act the same. I, on some level, I'm going to have to assimilate. You know, it's not like New York. So I'm going to lose weight. So I rapidly lost, and this is a big trigger warning with anyone with disordered eating or eating disorders, but I rapidly lost about 90 pounds in three months. So I just basically stopped eating. And it was, yeah, full, you know, any spectrum of disordered eating you can imagine. I adopted a really strict vegan diet. That was really a cover for an eating disorder, though. That wasn't like for animals or anything like that. It was just me trying to limit as many food groups as possible. So when I went to school, I was able to kind of maintain that loss. But what happened as a result of that weight loss was that I was really sick. I developed all these, what you guys would know as, you know, chronic illnesses that are rooting from, you know, malnutrition. But for me at the time, you know, doctors were completely bewildered. My thyroid numbers, my TSH was sky high. My digestion was altered. I developed panic attacks the first time in my life. I just kind of assumed the life of a sick person. So since then, since I was a freshman in college, and it's been a long time since then, I kind of have like what I would say clawed my way back to health. So my goal really with my clients is let's not do it the wrong way and kind of destroy your mental and physical health to lose weight. Let's try to do it the right way if that's a goal for you. Because I also can't say that society benefits people who are in what occupies what is known as like a normal sized body. Um, So it's not beyond me to notice that connection too. So if people wanted to also for societal reasons, which I don't encourage, but if that was something they wanted to do, you know, I'd have to hear them out. So I really want my clients to not go through the journey that I went through and do it better and right. And that is my mission is to really help people not get sick while they're trying to pursue health changes because often our health can be somewhat of like a pop a weasel. One thing goes down, then another thing kind of comes up. So how do we keep everything balanced? Wow. Yeah. What a story. And I feel like it's always so powerful when someone has that personal connection to it. And especially something like weight loss, where there's no way you can have weight loss without that emotional connection. And that it's such a deep personal goal. And I think the motivation behind weight loss, whatever someone's motivation is, is going to have a huge role in how successful they are, the ways they approach it. And so I think really accepting, yes, sometimes we need to lose weight for health issues. But yeah, there are societal reasons people want to lose weight. And yes, we may not encourage that as healthcare practitioners, but it's also something if you turn away a patient or a client who does want to lose weight to look better to fit in better, then they may take another avenue. So I think taking on those clients and saying, okay, let's do this in a healthy way. Because you know what, there are very serious health implications if you do it in the wrong way. And you've experienced that. And so kind of going about that in this really healthy and I love your your loving approach to it as well is so important. And I think if you take that part away from it, the success is actually decreased as well. And so I find that and I know you were saying this as well that in I mean the world of nutrition itself is incredibly confusing for everyone, oh. including myself. It's it's, <laughs> it's too much. And so it's one of those rapidly changing and highly emotionally driven fields because there's culture, there's personality, there's tons attached to nutrition. But in general, when we look at weight loss or diets, we have the diet culture, and then we have kind of this fat acceptance movement or this body positivity. And then I feel like some people are lost between the two because we want to love ourselves. We want to love our friends. We want to respect patients, right? And there's this really nuanced approach, I think. And I love the way that just for background for listeners, I messaged Michelle on Instagram because I loved her content. She goes about it in a very loving way, but you have that science background as well. 
yourself to say, okay, there are some times we need to lose weight. So how do you kind of manage that and, and balance those two concepts? Absolutely. So yeah, just to like double and triple clarify, I'd say that the kind of biggest issue with social media right now and in the nutrition world in general, even when you're seeing people in real life, is that everything is so polarizing. And the biggest issue with that is who gets left out high and dry? The actual clients, the actual people consuming the information, they're the ones actually getting harmed by this. So in kind of nutritionists and even naturopathic physicians, mm-hmm. love you guys, trust me. Love, my <laughs> business partner is president of the American Association for Naturopathic Physicians, Dr. Kochko. I am like team naturopathic physician all <laughs> day. Okay, I am like huge advocate. But I, I would say that the issue is that it becomes so polarizing. And I think it became so polarizing because people really wanted to prove a point and everything becomes a knee jerk reaction to something else. So the obvious aggression of diet culture, the trauma produced by diet culture produced what I would call a knee jerk reaction, which is this fat acceptance, health at every size movement. There are one, I just have to say this factually there, the principles behind health at every size are sound from a psychological standpoint. They're inarguable and completely valid and extremely important. There is absolutely no morality in our weight. And the fact that society views it that way is inherently incorrect, but also real, right? It actually happens. It's a very real thing. So the issue is when we kind of expand health at every size into the scientific realm and say that all weight loss is inherently dangerous and all weight loss is bad and that it's actually healthier to maintain a larger body than it is to even approach weight loss because the statistics that's always thrown around, 98% of diets fail. I don't, I've never seen any good science supporting that statistic, by the way. There's like one study in the 1970s that people reference. I mean, all three of us work with clients all the time and see people sustainably lose weight and improve their health for, I've now had clients for eight years who have, I mean, that's, I'm not that special, you know, no practitioner is that special. So obviously there's a way to do it that's reasonable, but starvation diets is not the way to do it. So Really what I want to find in my practice is because I do find that some weight loss and much of diet culture is extremely psychologically damaging. It is absolutely marketing to people's trauma. What I really want to find in my practice is when are people actually ready to receive nutrition information? And there's this kind of analogy I use. So, you know, if you gave two different people a knife and one person, you said, here, cook with this knife. One person would take the knife and cook with it. Another person who's not well or traumatized or not able to receive the information might use that tool for self-harm, right? So it's not the tool that's kind of the issue. It's where the person is at to be able to receive the information. So think of nutrition information like that tool. So what I'm doing in my work with clients is I'm highly vetting them to see, are they ready to receive this information? Recently, I worked with a client who saw me for 40 sessions before I gave them nutrition information. We dealt with everything surrounding their lifestyle from a coaching perspective before and and mindset around food before even introducing food it, it took a year before i touched the food subject because they absolutely weren't ready every single piece of food information felt like a threat so what i really want to do is find out when does it not feel like a threat when can i start to introduce some things because ultimately my goal is not for just full health acceptance body acceptance spiritual acceptance 100 percent, but I think that the health can be changed through lifestyle. That's why I'm a dietitian and why you guys are naturopathic doctors. So I do believe that. And I do believe you can get people to the point where they're ready to change just by letting them guide the way. I love that perspective you have on it. And like 
everything you're saying is coming from a place of love. Like you really want to see your clients succeed. You really want the betterment of these people's health, no matter where they are in their health journey and no matter like what their pant size may be. I do find that sometimes, especially with social media, it's really tough. Like if I put out a stat about, say, how harmful obesity can be, and then some people will come back and be like, oh, you really shouldn't be saying that about people who might be larger than you because, you know, they have their own traumas and they have their own experiences with it and just trying to like market this message on a large audience that's not safe and to me I just kind of feel like as a healthcare practitioner it's just not like I don't really know what the right message is to put out there especially if Mm -hmm. it's for social media for a larger crowd and sometimes I feel like a lot of this the reason why we're kind of doing this podcast is to kind of navigate this world of like maintaining body positivity and mental health for people who may have eating disorders or past history of trauma with eating disorders but also trying to you know market this message of health how like being obese might have very very negative health risk factors involved with it so in order to work towards a healthier life for yourself this might be one of the steps of course not one of the things that you know I'll push on someone specific if they're not ready but uh, from a social media standpoint I'd love to hear your opinion on that Oh, yeah. And I just want to tell you, I feel for you because literally, you know, you guys are naturopathic doctors, okay? You guys are already on what is considered, at least in America, I don't know about in Canada, as like the fringe, like people who are like, the, <laughs> oh, like yeah. to me, should be the mainstream, but it's hilariously you guys are the fringe, which is like the weirdest thing <laughs> in the world. This is like any other country, naturopathic medicine is just what medicine is. But in the way that the world is now, you know, you guys are on the fringe. So already, I think there's higher scrutiny of naturopathic doctors already. So if you guys say anything, you're already poking the bear somehow. So I just want to tell you, I feel for you completely. I kind of have, because I'm a registered dietitian and I'm classically trained in Western medicine, I kind of have the comfort and what I will literally call privilege of being able to say things and people can instantly not want to attack me as much. But once I say I'm a functional dietitian, I actually go into the other world. It's pretty it's, it's pretty yeah, wild. The word functional. Yes, exactly. Functional <laughs> is already, it's is snake oil triggering. Exactly. Which is, again, hilarious because to me it just means bad. But, you know, I, you know, we might have to cut that. I don't know. Don't, it's fine. But it's a great question, Christine. So specifically around the word obesity, I will play devil's advocate here. So I don't believe that obesity is a standalone diagnosis. I don't think the state, it's a chronic state of existence but to me it's a symptom which i know you guys view it as a symptom too it's never the root cause the root cause and i love this when doctors say oh you're obese you need to lose weight like that's like the most like it's almost like idiotic to say that because it's like that's obviously the reason they're obese is not because they needed to lose weight there's obviously something else going on it's like here's the thing you need to do but i will never tell you how to do it it's not a cure to quote unquote obesity is not losing weight how do you lose weight? That's what the cure would be, right? So I think that it's kind of also in the United States, like, you know, words get co-opted a lot. And I think obese got co-opted by diet culture to be an attacking word, even though what you're trying to say is you are eagerly, literally taking your time to put free messages into the world. Your goal is to help people, right? So you're obviously not going on to be like, I'm here to shame and attack people in larger bodies. It's of course not your goal. And I think people really need to feel that and understand that. Like as healthcare professionals, we are truly here to help, especially naturopathic physicians. You guys are going on the fringe to help specifically. You're going, you know, out of what is conventionally accepted as the correct way to do things to to help people even more. And I truly believe that. So I wish people would give you more grace on that. But I think the word obese, again, has been co-opted in a really negative way. So I understand that kind of what I'll call, again, knee-jerk reaction. 
So we use the phrase occupying a larger body that might be like a little bit more soothing of a term for people that doesn't feel so like, you know, when I'm 12 years old and going to the doctor's office and they're like, you're obese, lose weight. And I said to the doctor, you're obese too, you should lose weight. I mean, like, that's like what a 12 year old says. Like, I was like, you know, thank you for this information. I think that word has a lot of weight to it as a first thing I'll say. Now, when it comes to actually sharing messages, the tricky part is we know that fat mass has legitimate implications on your body, wherever it came from. And that's not to say that you're shaming the person for it being there by any means, but we know it has implications. The health at every size movement does not believe that it has any implications. They do not believe that health and weight are correlated in a substantive way. I do. You do. We've seen it happen. And even thinking about something, and I try to explain this to people too, you know, like diabetes, let's say, like we do know that it's not a causal relationship, but fat cells and insulin sensitivity, like these things are almost causal. They're so correlated that they're causal, right? We know what an impact it can have on someone. So I ask people, you know, would you rather me tell you legitimately what the risks are? Are these food companies that I, you know, touting these foods as all foods are equal and are they the ones who are going to be with your family when you're someone's hospitalized for diabetes? Like who's going to be there for you? Like they don't actually care, these food companies. So we want to give the right information to people. It's really hard on social media. My approach has been, I don't care what people say back to me because I know where my heart is and I will learn if there's triggering words like obese. But I think that be really firm, what I call is in the middle ground. So be really firm in the middle ground and, and live there and say, I am here for your health. Here is legitimate scientific information you need to know. And if you give basic information and people aren't ready for it, then they're not ready for it. But you're giving life-changing information for people. And maybe like a statistic about obesity wouldn't be functional, but something like, here's how inflammation and leptin are related. And this is how you can lower your set point. Like that's valid information that people really need. So there's other, sorry, I'm, this is a long rant, but this is such juicy, <laughs> important stuff. The, the other thing I'd say is there's a big difference between coddling and compassion. So I always say, like, don't coddle. All of our patients are adult people, right? They don't coddle them while at the same time being really compassionate and finding out what those triggers are. On social media, you don't know what someone's triggers are, but be really compassionate with the information you're giving by giving important information too. I love that. And I think what it comes down to is respect, right? And I think not coddling. And if you have respect for someone at any size, and that's the part I do love about that any size movement is it's not about health at any size. It's about respect at any size. And it doesn't matter if you're in what we classify as like a normal or a healthy BMI. Like it doesn't matter where you are. You should always be treated with respect. And if you're treating someone with respect and they have elevated health risks and you are their healthcare provider, that's something you need to communicate with them because they're your patient when it comes down to it. And I think the way that's communicated makes all the difference. And I think that's where a lot of that kind of negative interactions with healthcare providers happens where you are sitting at your doctor's office when you're 12 years old and they're like, you need to lose weight, right? And it's like, okay, again, like great things, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't look in the mirror today. Thank you. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> exactly. so I, I think how we communicate that and coming down to, okay, this is about respecting you and how, again, that individuality as well. And so what you say to one patient is very different than what you're going to say to the other patient. And that's why I love naturopathic medicine because you take that time to get to know the person to know, yeah. okay, you can say this to someone. You can't say this to that other patient because you know what their past history is. You've talked about what their triggers are. You've had that open conversation. Where's your comfort level here? And I love that you were mentioning that you assess when someone's ready. And I guess, how would you say you know when someone's ready? Because I guess it would be different for everyone else, for all of your clients. But how do you gauge when someone's ready? Do you just wait for them to tell you? 
I think it might be hard for them to sometimes know if they're ready as well. Totally. It is hard for them to know. I think it's kind of when you, first of all, you have to resolve whatever the kind of mindset trauma. I wouldn't call it like, you know, if there's, by the way, I work with a lot of different therapists and, you know, who work with EMDR, somatic experiencing, to, like alongside during this process. Because what I'm really exceptional at is, unfortunately, unveiling trauma in people, but I'm not a trained trauma therapist. So I'm like, Ooh, okay, we found something. Now I have to, you know, work with my lovely friend and we'll come right back to it. Um, and, you know, let's work through that little nugget of trauma. But I can work with the lifestyle and mindset modalities around it when someone's helping them to resolve the legitimate kind of, you know, the meat. Um, so I would say that I have clients who come in and they're like, guns blazing, diet culture, hit me with a diet, give me a meal plan. And I can tell kind of what the intention is behind that and can feel the heat of it and the fear of it too. And really like, that's just like an energy exchange with clients too, is really like, Ooh, this is coming from a fear place. So what I like to do is ask a lot of questions. So when I can start noticing that my clients are, the questions I'm asking aren't triggering, they're more of a data point than anything else. If I was like, if you want to jump on the scale, like, you know, let me know how that would be. And if my client responds like, oh, I'm, whew, I'm really anxious when he just said the word scale, we're not at all ready for that. You know, I, the goal is to have every single client get to the point where they're ready to use information as information and not weaponize it against themselves unintentionally. So really, if I'm asking those questions, I'm feeling the responses, I'm watching their nonverbal cues and trying to pick up on how they're feeling. And it's really frequent in sessions. Also, if I ever, if clients requested that I help them understand their weight better, I would use like really intense, like shaking and really intense preparation before getting on the scale because it's such a traumatizing action. But some clients still want that feedback, but they don't want the trauma of it. So again, I don't think that the scale is inherently bad. I think that our responses to it that we're born with kind of, you know, so I'm watching their nonverbal cues. I'm asking the right questions. I'm listening to their reactions. And then I might pitch something and see what the reaction is. Like, what do you think about just like talking about what you ate last week? Would you want to start talking about that? How would you feel? It's, it's a really big process of asking for consent constantly. Just consent, consent, consent. They are the one in charge. And I'm really just like their sidekick. Like, what do you think about this? Okay. We don't want to do that. And I also like that really like, so what kind of laissez-faire personality, especially around scale trauma and weight trauma is just acknowledging it and validating it, but not giving too much into it and kind of pulling out of it when you can too, and making it a lighter kind of environment also. So the short answer is ask a lot of questions, consistently ask for consent and really just watch and listen. Yeah. I love that. And I love that approach that the sidekick approach. And I always say that to patients, like I, we're partners in this, like this is your health and I'm here to help you. And I'm kind of like your GPS. You can check me like the I map kind of thing, but it's, you are the one driving because I think that's another thing that we've kind of come to do it with healthcare in general, but especially with weight loss is that it's so disempowering to always have to go ask someone like, what do I do with my body? And yes, you're a source of information and can be like a guide, but it's your body and what you want to do with it is completely up to you. I can give you that information and we can work together to work on some goals. But I think this idea that you need to go to someone else to figure out what diet is best for you or go to someone else to figure out how should I feel about my body is so sad and it's so disempowering. So I love the kind of, I'm your sidekick. I'm here to kind of help guide you approach. But what it comes down to is this is your body and your life. And even if you are at an elevated health risk, that's your decision at the end of the day, right? Absolutely. And it's if it means more to you to continue eating the way you are and have elevated health risks, that's your choice. And I think that's something that's lost a lot of time in medicine. 
Absolutely. I think putting the ball back in the client's court or patient's court in your case is, is so not normal in healthcare, which is pretty insane. So getting people to feel that they're ready to empower themselves to make decisions is really all the work we're doing, right? I don't think many people lack nutrition education. I think they lack intuition around their health and accessing their own intuition around their health. I think we have enough nutrition information available online. In fact, way too much nutrition information. We need to cut it down as much as we can. And then of course, like we said, there's these polarizing, polarizing pieces of information all over the internet and people are already traumatized. So it makes this whole mess where people really want to give their power away, which is why, by the way, working with any of the three of us is not the most comfortable experience because it's challenging. The work that we're asking people to do is like, pony up and put yourself first and prioritize yourself and take control of this. And I, you know, I, my clients always will say when they first start with me, like, tell me what to do. And I'm like, Oh, I I hate to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what to do. (laughs) And they hate it. It's like so much easier, you know, to just be told what to do, but we really have to figure out exactly what's going on and exactly what's going to work for them for even giving a recommendation. Recommendations shouldn't come even in the first, second, third session normally. It should really be coming after that. Um, and any recommendation should be so catered to the person. And really the goal of my sneaky recommendations is I want to see them fall flat on their face with them so that they can learn what actually works and what doesn't. So I'm like, fail horribly, please, so that we can know <laughs> how terrible my recommendations are and how you know better than I do. That's what I want to learn. <laughs> Wow, I love that approach. And just like coming from such a loving angle as well, I feel like it really helps the patients or clients also open up to you and you get so much more information that they otherwise would have probably kept hidden, which would also hinder their progress, it would hinder any sort of treatment or diet plan, or anything that you would recommend to them just because they were like, I don't know if I feel safe with this practitioner, I don't know if I can disclose to them that like, I had a binge last night and ate a bunch of chocolate bars. And like, I just, I don't want to talk about that. Where that can be some sort of like very key, important evidence in helping you guide them along their journey of health as well. So I love yeah, having that. that's a really beautiful way of phrasing it. It's like, even when you're sitting with a client, you're exchanging like your mirror neurons, right? Like you're literally exchanging energy in this conversation with clients. So part of the healing journey is literally just, creating that safe space. I know we always say it's kind of like an overused phrase in like the wellness world, which is like that safe space. But I think like you said, like creating just that space, the person starts healing the second they feel safe to tell you that information. That feeling of safety literally creates health, which is the most insane part of our job ever. Just by showing up and making people feel that they are heard and validated, their physical body starts healing. That's insane. That we have the gift and the privilege to be able to sit with people and do that is the most unbelievable part of our job. And the most missed part of healthcare, I don't know about in Canada, but certainly in America right now, is that the practitioner is healing through listening. That is the healing part. That it's not our education or our degrees that are as important as holding that space for people because it's probably the most powerful thing that we can possibly do. Yeah, usually when I chart, I call it supportive listening, which truly is like, (laughs) it's one of the best medicines. And like, I have so many patients come up to me and say, the fact that I can sit with you and talk about my story and you won't like interrupt me because you have another visit that you scheduled within five minutes of mine is like so 
empowering for me to be able to talk and to be able to discuss. And like, I feel like I trust you more than like my practitioner A, B, and C, which is, it's truly like such a blessing to be able to have, especially in Canada, the gift of time we have because we have a public health care system. Not all medical oh, yeah. doctors have the, have the ability to take time with their patients because they're restricted by different systems than we have. So it truly is a blessing to work in this that's really powerful too. I didn't even think about that. There's, there's like actual, since it's a government system, there's, there's different restrictions and rules. Oh, that's super interesting. So you guys are even more empowered and amazing. That is so cool. I love this. You're, you're being our cheerleader right now. And I truly love it. I, so I went to, when I was sick for these couple of years, I kind of brought myself, what I'd say is like 70% back to health through self-healing methods, through my own learning. And then I went to a naturopathic physician who was Dr. Robert Kotzko. And it, by the end of the session, I was like, oh, he has no idea that he thinks he's my doctor. He's my business partner now. So I literally <laughs> was like, he's completely screwed because I'm like, whatever this is, whatever naturopathic medicine is, and I only learned this obviously like seven years ago. I was like, this is the meat and potatoes. Whatever the <laughs> heck this is I want in, this is what I want to be doing. Like, I love obviously it. not in a medication, in a you know doctor capacity, but I'm like, this is the level of care. His initial session was 90 minutes. I think we went to like two full hours. And I was like, oh, there is no possible way that healing is possible without some level of time commitment. And yes, I eventually convinced him to be my business partner because um, <laughs> lots of persuasion, but yeah. it was a completely life-changing moment, which is why I'm telling you, you got like the one dietitian who's completely obsessed with naturopathic doctors. I'm like, I'm like so here for naturopathic physicians. Oh, well, we're so happy to have you here. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so continue. I could talk about ages for how much I'm enjoying oh, this one. I'll continue on the next question. So sometimes in our practice as naturopathic doctors, we use things like elimination diets or we'll tend to, you know, pick a couple of foods that patients have to restrict to solve digestive issues. But I know that this can be incredibly triggering for some patients. What are some of the risks of these diets and how do you go about this in your practice with people who might have some very specific dietary issues? Oh, it's such a good question. This is my concern with people going to functional medicine doctors and sometimes naturopathic doctors is that they're handed a piece of paper, you know, here's a low FODMAP diet, see you later. I actually was on a controversial chat recently about elimination diets, if they should exist at all, just because they are tremendously triggering. And I can say for especially gut health clients, which is a large majority of my clientele, they do develop food fears about those foods for long periods of time. It's just human nature, right? It's just like evolutionary biology. Like this food could make me sick. I am definitely afraid of being sick, especially with people who are suffering with chronic gut issues that really impair their life. Like if they notice some relief from it, they might attribute it to that one food when in reality, it could have been a, a cluster of different things. So when I approach it, I like to say, you know, go for the heavy hitters first. So if there's something that you're like, I'll give the example of like, maybe it's gluten, right? This is something that probably is causing an issue. I really don't do a full elimination with my clients. I do as little eliminating as I possibly can and as much increasing as I possibly can. Now in the beginning, you know, and I think about elimination diets that the bigger issues that long-term they could completely debilitate your gut health, right? Because you want more like microbial diversity. You want it to make your stomach work. You don't want it to stay stagnant and, and, and be eating basically baby food all the time. You need to <laughs> eventually like add some cruciferous vegetables in. You need, you need that stuff back in there when I think of like low FODMAP diets. There's benefits of, of a wide variety of foods. And it's almost the way that I think of elimination diets too, is like you're almost eating 
like a sick person. And then ultimately the goal is to get you to not have to eat like a sick person, basically. So what I do with clients is I try to keep as much in as I possibly can. And this is more controversial because a lot of people really do support elimination diet. And if there's something that's glaring and obvious, and I'm noticing those patterns, we might try to very gently reduce it. And ultimately the issue is with something like gluten is you really need 30 days to see if it's actually working or not. So there's a lot of hype up to that moment. There's a lot of, here's some replacements. There's a lot of getting people really geared up. And I repeatedly say, this is not forever. In fact, we're going to have to add this back in to see if this is actually working. So not getting the brain to be so nervous around, you know, eliminating foods. But I have seen from a lot of different doctors, dietitians, office, just a piece of paper hand. This is someone with elimination diet. Those are absolutely triggering and extremely dangerous to clients and can absolutely lead to disorder eating and maybe even eating disorders. So that is something that can develop a lot of food fear. So that is something that I absolutely would advise people against, just handing someone a paper. I preface, if there's one food I'm taking out, I preface it like a hundred times. I'm like, this is not forever. And I literally speak to their, I'm like, I'm speaking to your brain directly. Don't even listen consciously. This is not a threat. It's okay. This food is not scary. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to jump out of the bushes. And it's, it's not a lion or a tiger. Like it's not, you know, it's not going to attack you and really getting them into a place of safety around it and understanding that it, it is not forever. Now, if it is forever, you cross that bridge when it comes to it. But I think that it's really practicing, really gentle and really trying to do it as least eliminating as possible, I think is the approach that I, I've seen work best. That's definitely an approach that I like to take on as well. Like I really, truly hate kind of forcing a patient to do a full elimination diet because I mean, I've done one. Maylee's definitely done one as well. It's just not pleasant to do for a prolonged period of time. Now, for me, it was kind of more of just like self-experiment. You know, if I'm going to recommend this, I want to know what it feels like kind of thing. And I'm really glad I did it because I know how hard it can be. But the part that you said about food fear, I think is so valid. Like I have so many patients who've seen other naturopathic doctors and they are now terrified to add foods back into their diet because like their digestive pain was so terrible and they have flare-ups once in a while even though they're cutting out all these foods and they're like oh there must have been something with dairy in it because otherwise I wouldn't be feeling this terrible and like I'm so terrified that like my food's going to be contaminated. I'm so terrified to like get a bag of mixed nuts because I don't know if there might be gluten in it. Or like, I'm so terrified of A, B, and C because in the past they've had a practitioner say like, you must cut out this food for life because it will harm you and it will cause this pain. And like, this is A, B, and C reasons why you have to do it. And when I see them, it's so hard for me to see them as a practitioner, as them as my patient, because I truly feel for them and their very, very severe food fears around foods that really they shouldn't be afraid of. Like really, no one should be afraid of any food. So this is an interesting thing. Let's take something like Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? If you get people to be afraid of alcohol, first of all, I don't know that fear is a great motivator in general. I don't think fear works very effectively. Like trying to kind of chase something positive is always better than trying to chase something negative. Like negative reinforcement isn't that effective. That's positive reinforcement is. So I think about like alcohol economics where it's like, okay, you can make someone afraid of alcohol. That might be a little bit, if you have one sip of alcohol, you know, that is, that's one of the tenets. Like it's, you're, you're sober, you're not sober, right? When you think about food, you can't create these food fears because you need food to survive. Now you don't necessarily need gluten to survive, but gluten is in everything and like <laughs> so vast in our food supply. So you're really making people afraid of something that is biologically necessary, which is really dangerous, like super, super dangerous to make someone afraid of something that their body needs to survive. And you're kind of directly putting them on the path then to developing disordered eating. I'm not saying one piece of paper 
you know, of course, these are multifactorial relationships with food that they don't just come out of nowhere and they don't come from one piece of paper, but you can instigate and kind of pull the trigger on something that was lying dormant and underneath. So you're absolutely right. It's completely heartbreaking. And, and just like I would tell people don't do what I did, I would also say, try not to do a really strict elimination diet because it, most people come out scathed. Like you don't come out unscathed from it. I still feel like I'll think about something. I'm like, oh, onions. Like, should I really be eating onions because low FODMAP? Like, and I've been out of the game for a long time. Like I, you know, this is what I do. And I will have those thoughts sometimes. And I'm like, no, your stomach can handle it now. But it's really hard navigating that really gently, especially when food is something that is directly related to our survival and being alive. So it's not like you can just cut out alcohol. You can't just cut out any food really easily because food is essential for our survival. So creating fear around it creates fear of survival, which is best. So we need, we need to survive. A lot of the time, these are cut out unnecessarily without enough evidence to restrict it. And it's almost more explorative. And I think that's when it becomes really dangerous if we have no evidence that these foods are actually causing the symptoms. And then sometimes we have to take foods out to test a little bit. But if you're telling someone it's probably this, some patients take that as, okay, I'm now gluten intolerant. I can't have gluten anymore. Sometimes practitioners will use language that they don't realize is threatening to someone. And for someone, they take that like, oh, my body can't handle this. And so even if you're not specifically saying you need to cut out gluten, they may say, well, you know what? I'm, especially those people who really want to optimize and kind of bring their health to the next level, they might think, well, maybe if I take a gluten, I'll feel like that much better. Like it almost works in this dose response kind of way. And so I think some people also take that information and maybe you're not specifically saying that as the practitioner, but they may interpret it that way. And the other thing that I see in practice is someone who maybe their sister went on a gluten-free diet or they cut out dairy and they're like, oh, well, I have, you know, a lot of bloating. So I started, I cut out dairy and gluten because my, it worked really well for my sister. And actually like she's so much better now. And so then they take it out and they think it's kind of this thing that's going to work for everyone. And so I think that is something else or they'll see on social media or something. And so they've kind of taken it into their own hands. And now they've developed this fear when actually there, there is, there's actually no correlation. Not only is it worth it, but there's no correlation at all for them specifically. I mean, that's with all diets, but really around, I think gluten and dairy are like the kind of two heavy hitters that we see going on. And then I'll play devil's advocate against all of us because I'm on your guys' team with this. But the issue is also if we were being more scientifically based the way that gluten is processed now it's like different i'm not going to say worse or better it could be better everyone listening so i'm not i'm not going to specify that is different than it was processed before so we really don't understand how it's going to impact people's bodies and we know that the rates of chronic illness are going up too perhaps it could benefit someone it's, i'm literally not going to say if it's bad or good but perhaps it could benefit someone and hurt someone else the other thing is when you remove gluten and dairy from your diet all right, you just took out potentially vital carbohydrates your body needs. You just took out potentially vital proteins and micronutrients, right? So this kind of idea of constantly subtracting is also really, really dangerous because it's like, all right, what did you put in place? So you just took that out. What are you adding in as a result of taking that out? I think also when people, they say, okay, I took a gluten and dairy and they feel great, but maybe they stopped eating like fast food and pizza and they started, you know, cooking their chicken and rice at home. And they're like, yeah, I feel so much better without dairy and gluten. And then we always I say, okay, what are your sources of dairy and gluten? What are your, right? So what foods specifically are you taking out? Because sometimes we focus too much on the micronutrient and not how are you making these foods? What are you cooking them in? How are you eating them, right? And so I think 
that. And then there's obviously the whole psychology behind these are bad, so I'm safe now, so I can digest properly. And then we've got that whole kind of ability to digest because you feel safe. Oh, yeah, your vagus nerve. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. So that's absolutely true, too. Right. And I love that you brought that up because even the idea, just like I said, sitting across from a practitioner who's here to help you gives you that kind of amazing hormonal response and healing response. Being in front of food that you're afraid of is going to completely destroy your digestion. So it's really funny that these practitioners are handing out elimination diets. Partially, here's a piece of paper. If you eat sugar, you're going to die. And wondering why people aren't digesting food properly. Oh, because your body thinks you're going to die when you eat it. And that's how our body acts. When our body thinks we're going to die, it's dying. That's the truth. So you actually, it's the relationship around food, which is why when I said I had this one client I worked with for 40 sessions before we talked about the actual foods they're eating. Well, we talked about them, but before implementing changes, I was like, let's look at your posture when you're eating, right? Let's focus on the speed of what you're eating. Let's focus on what's going on around you when you're eating. Like, there's so many other pieces of the eating puzzle. And it's honestly, elimination diets are kind of a cheap shot. It's kind of like, oh, here's what I think is going to work. Here you go. Well, let's actually find out what's going to work instead of, you know, taking shots in the dark and leaving people with potentially traumatizing experiences for the rest of their life. Yeah. And especially talking about like subtracting and subtracting until basically they're eating nothing. I have so many patients who are like stuck in this food fear loop and they keep cutting out foods thinking like, oh, I still have digestive concerns after I cut out gluten, dairy, carbs, fruits, fiber, anything with fiber, cruciferous vegetables and all of this. And I'm still feeling bad. So I'm going to go ahead and like cut out one more thing. And like I have patients who are also like they're just really not eating enough because they're so afraid of all these foods. And like because they're at these nutritional deficiencies, they feel even worse. And like the number of times I even try to relay the message like you have to start eating more to feel better is like a message that just can't get across when they're kind of in this deep. Because they're also super at that point, they're petrified to eat these foods. So you're actually kind of not even speaking, you're speaking to someone's trauma. And that's the really hard part and where you get into a really tough situation. But I think that what I like to do with clients who, if I notice a client has what I would consider to be an eating disorder, I won't work with them. I don't diagnose eating disorders. But if I notice that I will send them to a practitioner who specializes in eating disorders, I do not specialize in eating disorders. I can help and facilitate people with disorder eating, but I do not work with clients who have eating disorders who are engaging in tendencies that are potentially in a capacity that I can't work with, essentially. But I like to, with clients who do have disordered eating, who I am comfortable and able to work with and support, I like to help them to just think about how the food is going to be giving them life's energy and really going through that kind of mindful eating experience. And like, you're looking at it like it's super scary. Like, let's take a look at what this actually is. Like, this is grown from the earth, literally sent to you somehow from across the world to come into your body. It contains life's energy in it. Like, we die without this. We need this so badly, right? So I like to kind of reframe in that way with my clients and really do some super soothing kind of experiences with them and meditations and visualizations about the food going in and assimilating and getting all the nutrients from it. But the pathway after elimination diets that are strict for a long time is always you end up like, I, I say it's like the, you almost end up on the bodybuilder diet, which is like brown rice and chicken. And that's like <laughs> the only things that are safe and like sweet potatoes. And those are like the only foods that are like, okay. And it's the same thing with diet culture. So I would say that elimination diets can trigger the same kind of pathways that diet culture can too. And I totally, totally agree with you that the fear of food itself is more dangerous than the gluten, probably. Yeah, for sure. And even if someone is gluten intolerant and we know that and we've and they know that, I think it's still always important to check in around that and say, is and again, we're differentiating between celiac disease and gluten intolerance and saying, we know you're gonna feel awful. Sometimes, again, going back to this is your decision 
right? You may feel awful and you may have bad stomach pain, but maybe you really want to have a piece of cake for someone's birthday and that's worth it to just feel kind of crappy the next day. And I always tell patients that like, this isn't a yes or no. If we are eliminating, it's to give us answers. And then these are your foods that they are giving you an answer as to why you feel this way. But sometimes that's all people need is they just need that answer, right? And they just want to know the why, especially with digestion. Skin and digestion are the two people are just baffled and they don't know what's going on. And so I always say, we're doing this to empower you to make the decision. But then you make the decision. And sometimes it'll mean I'm having a slice of pizza because I want pizza. And sometimes it'll mean I don't want to feel that way. So I'm gonna, that's something I can do. It's a tool when we come down to it. I love what you just said. And there's really, I'm going to give a completely egregious and ridiculous uh, anecdote that's going to, I will, I will make it relevant. But um, <laughs> when me and my terrible ex-boyfriend broke up, my mom said to me, I think, and I broke up with him, but it was before I was ready to break up with him. I, I think. And my mom said to me, you know, you should get back together with him. And I was like, why would I get back together with him? She's like, because then you'll really see that you don't want to be with him. So it's almost like with gluten, if someone's intolerant, like give them the freedom, go eat it. If you want to eat it, See what happens. You know, it's your choice. Let's, let's ride it out. We're, we're going to be fine either way, right? Yeah. So I'll tell my client, if you text me tomorrow and you've had a terrible gluten reaction, I will help you. We'll, we'll enzyme you up. We'll get, we'll get it moving through you, okay? We'll reduce your inflammation. We'll do the best that we can. We're not, you're not going to die from it. But yes, it, giving people the choice instead of kind of suppressing their own agency in it, I think you're absolutely right. Just saying, you know what, if you want to go eat the gluten or date your ex-boyfriend, just do it. And then people will start to say, well, do I actually want to do that is the question and give them the power to make the choice though. I love that. I think I might steal it. Steal it. You could steal my terrible ex-boyfriend too. No one wants. (laughs) So I I, I think that that is the, the cornerstone of all three of our practices is giving people the power to make their own health decisions. And it's a really delicate and super sweet balance between giving people vital and life-changing information and empowering them to kind of use it or not use it. It's their, it's their choice to use it, but you're willing to lay it out for them. That's awesome. Well, this has truly been such a lovely conversation around body positivity and diets and just sort of like what we can do as practitioners to best support our patients undergoing any sort of, you know, trauma or looking to better their health through their weight as well. So this has been excellent. And at the end of our podcast, we usually like to do like a quick three most actionable items or three tips to implement today. So can you give us three of your most actionable items for our listeners today around, you know, self-love, body positivity and diet culture as well, if they're maybe looking to make a change in their weight? Absolutely. So I think the first kind of piece of the puzzle is that if you're listening to this and you really want to accept your body, but also want to lose weight, you are not wrong. You are not crazy. It is okay. And whatever you're feeling is accurate and okay. So I'm validating you right now. If you are occupying a larger body, you've done the work of intuitive eating and you're like, this is awesome. Now what? It's okay to want to lose weight. It is not, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a vain person. It's okay. Especially if it's for a reason that's really important to you. So just sit with that. That's my first piece of information is just own that. And it's okay. And validate that. I get so many clients who come to me and are so ashamed to want to lose weight now. And I'm like, don't be ashamed of how you're actually feeling. It's okay to feel how you want to feel. Let's figure out if it's actually something that's going to be actionable and something that's going to make you feel better. Or if this is something else that's kind of creeping up and insecurity, or if it's something for you. So first own how you feel, how you feel is absolutely correct. The next piece of information is just delete every single thing off of your social media 
that feels really polarizing, attacking, traumatizing, just take it off of your social media. If, especially if you're going to use social media to get this kind of information, really lean on practitioners that you trust, that make you feel safe when you're on their pages. Stop attacking those nice, lovely practitioners on social <laughs> media, please. Stop attacking. And really just, again, try to create the kind of information coming in as being really a safe space for you too. Try to create that, that space for yourself. And I would say that when it comes to food fears, I'm going to give everyone a, a task, which is write down every single food you don't eat, why you don't eat it, and when you stop eating it. Just start there. Before you even go to a practitioner's office with this, right? Just start there. And if you do go to a practitioner's office, if you're going to, you know, a fantastic naturopathic doctor and integrative <laughs> dietitian's office, what I want you to do is go in and say, this is what I'm feeling, okay? So you have this. You can almost take it with you into the appointment. It would help Maylie or Christine in, in an appointment saying, hey, here's exactly what's going on, okay? I've been, this is how many doctors I've been to. 20 freaking doctors, 20 different people told me 20 different things. This is where my head's at right now. So just look and then take a look back. And I, I always do this with my clients and I hold up the sheets and I'm like, you filled two like sheets of paper with the food you're not afraid to eat. How many, how much of this is really valid for what's going on in your body? And they're like, I have no freaking clue. So that's what we can help you work out. So go and make that list for yourself. What food I'm afraid of, why, what it's going to do to me, how it's going to kill me, how long I haven't been eating it, why I stopped eating it in the first place. And then I would take that to a practitioner or I would within yourself really look at the ones that, oh wait, this is completely invalid. I can add this back in and slowly and gently start to kind of add foods back in. It's all about adding instead of subtracting. I love that. Wow. That was very helpful. I'm going to, I'm going to use that as well. Steal that from you too. Use it. Amazing. Michelle, this has been fantastic. As Christine said, love your energy. Love your love for naturopathic doctors. Oh, the best. <laughs> I'm just like, I really want, I love that you're a registered dietitian, but you have the integrative approach as well. I mean, I found the one RD who's really gets it, you know, really gets it. She found the gold mine. <laughs> I'm so I happy we found each other. And see, there's good things on Instagram too. Sometimes <laughs> there's bad things on Instagram, but sometimes there's very good things on Instagram. Absolutely. That's my last tip. Find these fine ladies. Go to them. <laughs> if it's in your corporation, you know, for the well company, just go. They're fantastic. They're wealth of knowledge. I have such adoration for naturopathic doctors specifically. Like, I love functional medicine doctors. They're great. <laughs> I really do. You guys are the freaking best. Thank you. You are. I think that the the way that you operate with root cause and and with such empathy, I just I have had the best experience in naturopathic physicians. So kudos to you guys from the bottom of my heart for having me on the show today. And I know we'll be in touch for many other things. Yeah, for sure. It's truly been a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Well Conversation. Until next time, feel well, learn well. <laughs>